Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Welcome to the Chris Hedges Report. The rise of neo-fascist movements across the globe differs from the fascist movements of the 20th century. Fascism in the last century arose to break radical workers' movements, many organized by the Communist Party. That was the point of Mussolini and Hitler. But the current neo-fascist figures such as Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil or Narendra Modi in India do not need to destroy workers' movements and unions. These have already been decimated by globalization, which depletes trade union power and the instrument of nationalization. The neo-fascists channel the anger of the unemployed and underemployed towards minorities and the vulnerable. This, of course, is the historic task of fascism. White men who once believed there was a place for them in society flock to the cult-like Republican Party built around Donald Trump, the Le Pen movement in France, or Alliance for Deutschland. They attack migrants as if migrants rather than the ruling financial elites are responsible for their misery. Vijay Prashad, in conversation with Frank Barat in his new book, Struggle Makes Us Human, Learning from Movements for Socialism, addresses these deformities and explains how we can fight back. Prashad, an Indian historian and journalist, is the author of 30 books, including Washington Bullets, Red Star Over the Third World, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and The Poor Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. He is the chief correspondent for Globetrotter and a columnist for Frontline. He is also the chief editor of Leftward Books. Joining me to discuss his new book, Struggle Makes Us Human, Learning from Movements for Socialism, is Vijay Prashad. So I use that in the introduction because there are many, uh, I thought, great points in your book. But that difference between classical fascism and neo-fascism uh, I think is important. And I wondered if you could kind of uh, e- elaborate a little bit on that in terms of perhaps other differences or why neo-fascism sometimes doesn't look like traditional fascism. First, uh, Chris, it's an honor to be with you. I'm really happy to um, be, be speaking with you uh, as far as we're going to be allowed to speak because it seems like every other day uh, people get their shows removed and so on. We, we're living in very difficult times. So I'm very happy to be here with you. Um, I've been struck by the language of fascism that gets thrown about to describe things. And sometimes there's a kind of laziness that sets in. You know, things look like fascism or if you don't like somebody, you call them a fascist and so on. But, you know, there was a great literature that developed in the 1930s and 40s, even after the war, to try to explain the rise of the first wave of fascism with Mussolini, with Hitler, and of course others. And that literature suggested that fascism developed largely, but not exclusively, as a way for ruling elites um, to have a hammer to break down the great threats posed by the growing workers' movements. It's also true that after the Russian Revolution of 1917, most of the revolutionary movements in Western Europe, uh, but also in Eastern Europe, in Hungary, in Germany, and so on, 
had been defeated. The, the uprising in 1919 defeated in Germany, um, the working class quite disoriented by that defeat. But nonetheless, by the time of the Weimar period in Germany, um, certainly in the 1920s with the big Turin strikes in Italy, working class movements had begun, begun to assert themselves again. And given the kind of crises faced by owners of property uh, with the Great Depression and so on, um, fascism was the great stick wielded by sections of the elite to beat back a workers' movement. So, you know, that's one interpretation of the rise of classical fascism. What happens in the 1990s and 2000s is we see something quite different take place. You know, in this contemporary period, it's very clear that um, the workers' movement was greatly disoriented by globalization, which is to say by the um, incorporation of workers from around the world into the international capitalist system. This includes workers in the former Soviet Union, workers from China, workers from much of the third world who had been, you know, in a way, held off from uh, the global capitalist system by mechanisms such as, you know, um, export, uh, uh, the prevention of ex uh, open exports through import substitution regimes in the third world, or by in the Soviet Union, um, the enclosing of the Soviet economy, the preserving of the sovereignty of the economy and so on. All of this breaks down in the 1990s. You see this vast um, tide of workers enter the factories of multinational corporations. This really damages worker power. Um, and then, of course, on top of that, it also weakens the sovereignty of states along the global commodity chain. So by the time of the you know, 2010s, workers' movements are really much weakened around the world. So then you ask the question, well, when this new wave of fascist-like movements develop or fascistic movements develop in India and in Brazil and so on, they don't fit into the definitions of classical fascism. Something else is at work here. Well, one of the things that interests me and interests me a lot in assessing this period is that really the kind of evisceration, the destruction, the desiccation of liberalism and to its left of social democracy in most parts of the world, beaten by the kind of austerity regimes driven by the International Monetary Fund, the kind of you know, neoliberal policies of privatization, of commodifying areas of social life, of cutting back on social welfare and so on. This global wave against, um, uh, you know, effectively social democratic policies, it delegitimizes liberalism, in fact, collapses liberalism on itself. You, you barely see liberal or social democratic parties emerging standing by the 2010s. In India, the Congress party pales shadow of itself. Um, you know, in, in other parts of the world, in Europe, we see the Labour Party completely disrupted by this move. The left uh, marginalized and even when it attempts to make a revival under Jeremy Corbyn, beaten back by the forces of, you know, well, neoliberalism, I suppose, is the word to use. So in that, what one sees is that the elites, in a way, 
um, lose whatever marginal liberal core that was held together in the previous period, either by the residues of national liberation movements, and that's in the third world, or by, you know, the great, um, as it were, post World War II boom that took place in the West, which allowed for, provided an allowance for a kind of liberalism. All of that collapses by 2010 politically. And here the hard right, which, you know, is not just the Bolsonaros and the Trumps and others. I mean, in effect, in, effect, in terms of policy, uh, most of ruling class parties end up in a way as hard right parties. In the United States, the Democrats, of course, are different from the Republicans, perhaps less repellent in their attitude towards culture, in their attitude towards social minorities and so on. But in terms of the kind of basic class hatred of of the poor, there's a unanimity of political opinion. And so as the elite moves in that direction, um, the neo-fascist section legitimates itself with his arguments against you know, minorities, immigrants, and so on, and begins to uh, strengthen its pole in society. Meanwhile, the left, already weakened by globalization, is weakened doubly. Because as social democracy disappears and as the center moves rightward, the left NGOizes itself. Many of the people who would have been, say, you know, important left politicians enter the NGO sector, enter the nonprofit sector, essentially to provide the kind of social relief in a private sector form that the state used to provide previously. And this, of course, weakens the left. It makes the left providers of relief rather than uh, people who are providing an imagination for a new society. So, I mean, in that sense, the, the lane for the hard right opens, Chris, much more easily because the left, both weakened by globalization and then secondly, weakening itself by becoming providers of social relief rather than those who create an imagination for a different society. I mean, that's really, in my opinion, the opening for this new kind of neo-fascist um, you know, uh, uh, wave in which we still live. Just to juxtapose with the 30s, there was also a collapse of liberalism, of course, in, in Weimar. Uh, what's interesting about the rise of fascist movements in Italy and Germany is that before they took power, they cloaked themselves in the language of socialism, uh, there's the great strike in Berlin organized by the communists and uh, Goebbels and the rest of the Nazi party realize that although they are about to outlaw unions as soon as they take power, uh, they have to join that strike in order to uh, get the workers. The other uh, interesting difference, I think, is uh, that in the 30s with the rise of fascism, they, they, they set up parallel structures to replace the state, including the iconography and symbols of the state, but we don't see that now. Yes, and that's interesting, Chris, because in my opinion, there is a kind of, you know, intimacy. There's a, a real intimacy between the hard right and the sections of, of, of statecraft, let's say, the permanent bureaucracy in, in states. What do I mean by that? I mean, look, in the period just before, and, and I think Latin America is an apposite place to, to make these reflections. In the period just before, um, in the 1970s particularly, we saw um, the coup d'etat as the instrument by which the elite using the military 
was able to come to power, clobber student movements, clobber the emergence of a new left and so on, clobber, you know, the Cuban influence on Latin America. They used the military. Um, they very much used uh, the coup d'etat as the form. Well, in this recent period, we also saw the left rise, this time not perhaps only the Cuban example, but also of Hugo Chavez. There were a series of left governments come to power, Evo Morales in Bolivia and onward. Well, the instrument used to tackle this rise wasn't the coup d'etat, except, of course, in Bolivia. Um, that was used in Bolivia and, and in Honduras. In other countries, the right has found it actually quite possible to use the constitution, to use whatever institutions exist to their benefit. So we're beginning to see things that we call lawfare, the use of use of the law against the left, how the law was mobilized to delegitimize Lula, to prevent him from running against Bolsonaro in the last election. Um, then there's a kind of use of the legislature, massive amounts of money used to buy off slim majorities in the legislature that was used against Dilma. Dilma Rousseff was removed from the presidency by a kind of legislative coup. So, I mean, if you take these three or four different ways, that's one. In India, the hard right has found it completely possible to use every instrument of the state. And in fact, those instruments of the state that um, they don't find valuable, they use the state to hammer them. You know, they use other instruments of the state. So there's a kind of, um, you know, unfortunate intimacy between the hard right and the state. They, they actually don't find um, democratic institutions to be an impediment anymore. You don't need to have the march on Rome. You don't need to have the burning of the Reichstag by itself. Now, this doesn't mean that the hard right doesn't use um, terrible forms of, of violence on the street. In India, for instance, it's again, it's a good example. It's quite clear that in the elections in Uttar Pradesh, in northern India, you know, uh, political scientists have looked at this carefully and they've seen that in parts of Uttar Pradesh where the hard right has engineered um, what is in India called communal violence or violence against Muslims in particular, but also against oppressed castes, where they've, you know, had these sort of small acts of extreme violence in one town or in one village these have operated almost homeopathically to change the mood um, in the entire state and swing the election for the hard right. So they use, you know, violence surgically. There's no need to, again, overthrow the constitution to come to power. And I think that's a very disturbing thing because it shows you that it's not enough to stand in defense of the constitution against the hard right. In the United States as well, Trump won an election. You know, however narrow the election was and however poor U.S. democratic systems are, they came to power through the election. And it's likely that in the next election, Mike Pompeo is going to be the president. So you can't defend the Constitution and say, well, you know, they are attacking the Constitution. In fact, they are using the instruments of democracy in some ways suffocating them by money and media power, which are, of course, the same thing, um, you know, in order to open their road. So I think this fatal intimacy between the hard right and democratic institutions is something for people to really consider. What's, what's been happening in many of our societies is the decline of public action, robust public action, has actually demoralized 
and demobilized majorities of people and has allowed the hard right to have a grip on so-called democratic institutions. That's a problem. Our antidote has to be to revitalize public action. Well, that's what you call demofare, democratic institutions that are used to subvert democracy because, of course, they have been captured by the corporate uh, elite, including the courts and the legislative branch. Um, you write that the forces of the elite win elections because the system does not allow anyone else to prevail. Second, people sometimes do not vote because of the futility of the process. That's 80 million registered voters in the United States. Frustration with the institutions indicates that people believe that it can be better, that they want their sovereignty to be better managed, that the system as it is, is inadequate. Third, there are a range of barriers to participation, including holding elections on working days, preventing people from vote. But you, you, you write later in the book about how, uh, I forget the term you use, but the, the reducing democracy to the kind of ritual of elections itself is a, uh, a, a mechanism by which you weaken and destroy democracy. You know, the key word for me, Chris, is confidence. Um, you know, what do people have confidence in? And do they have confidence in themselves to be able to, let's say, change things or, or you know, transform things at, at most, but also just change things or have an impact in the world? I think to a great extent, we live in a culture globally. I, I mean this globally. We live in a culture, global culture, where confidence in your capacity to act in the world is, is diminished. Um, in many ways, the advertising, media culture, but also just the nature of, let's say, systemic unemployment and underemployment and so on, has you know created a kind of sense in people made us into more consumers than citizens, you know, more into spectators than actors. And that's a big, that should be, I think, worrying for people um, who believe in concepts like democracy, that um, lots of people just watch the news, you know, they don't feel like they can make the news. And that, that you know, thing of becoming a spectator in the world, that's disturbing to me. I mean, I understand, you know, People must have a complicated attitude to the world. You don't always have to be an actor. You don't always have to be a citizen. You can also be a consumer and so on. Um, you can also just sit back and watch other things happen. You know, there's an uprising in Egypt. You don't have to get on a plane and rush there or to replicate it necessarily in your own society in a kind of, uh, you know, adventurist way. It's happening somewhere. You can watch what people are doing. But that's one thing, you know. At the same time, do you feel like you're always watching history being made? Um, this, you know, I don't even call it anymore the great man version of history, but this sort of televised version of history, you know, history is happening somewhere else. Other people do things. Um, you know, Joe Biden is doing things. He, and I just sort of drive to the grocery store, buy groceries, come home, put the news on and watch him doing things, making history. That sort of attitude, I think, goes quite deep in our world. Um, and that's a civilizational crisis for the concept of democracy. Um, you know, it's not a crisis that I'm particularly, um, you know, gripped by or worried about and so on. That should be the worry of people who believe in concepts like democracy. You can't have a democracy um, which is absent public action. The pandemic was a really, really good example of this. 
you know, when the pandemic struck the world, Cuba, a small country, 11 million people, 11,000 medical students walked out of their uh, dormitories. You know, 11,000 medical students left the dormitory and they went house to house and tested every one of the 11 million people in Cuba. Uh, I was in the United States asking people, has anybody from the government knocked on your door? Has anybody, not even from the government, has anybody from your community knocked on your door? In Kerala, state of 35 million, in the city of Trivandrum, the capital of Kerala, the student movement decided to galvanize themselves. They took clipboards. They went door to door, checking particularly to see if elderly people or people who are disabled and so on needed any assistance. Did they need medicines purchased for them? Did they need food delivered and so on? Um, this act of going door to door made them folk heroes in Trivandrum. And one of the students, Arya Rajendran, age 21, uh, then won the election and is now the youngest mayor in India. She's 20, just over 21, maybe 22 years old. Arya Rajendran. And she came to the public's notice because as part of the student and youth movement, they just by themselves decided to go door to door. That's an act of democracy, that, that, that kind of public action. And I fear that these are, you know, just because I'm telling you these one or two stories, that's what they are, is one or two stories. This should have been happening all over the world. And it wasn't. Partly because as people, we have been, you know, like a military after a war, Chris, we have been demobilized. We've been told, um, quickly mobilize for the election. You come to the election, you vote, and then you're demobilized. Go back home, the government will take care of everything. That's not how a democracy should function. A democracy should function so that every citizen feels, you know, always mobilized to act, to help other citizens, um, to assist people, to advance the cause of humanity and so on. Now, again, I just want to make sure I'm clear about this. This doesn't mean that every day you need to be doing something and so on. But you need to feel like you can get involved. You could go out and do something. That sensibility, that confidence, I fear, has been quite badly damaged by austerity regimes, neoliberalism, atomization of people, and a lot of it driven uh, by the kind of you know advertising or cultural world produced um, by what I think they quite cleverly did, which was to make us into consumers, to constantly beat us with the idea that we are consumers, the idea that we are consumers more than citizens. Well, totalitarian states invest quite heavily in elections uh, and orchestrate them uh, to give themselves legitimacy. Getting into that atomization, can you talk about this concept of platform capitalism that you write about? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Long before the pandemic, of course, because Amazon, which is the leader here, was founded long before the pandemic and moved from books to everything long before the pandemic. Um, it's a simple matter of, of scale, of returns on, on scale. If you are able to get um, the ability to get me anything I want, let's say I want uh, tea bags, I want to buy tea bags. Um, if you're able to deliver tea bags to me at a certain price point, which um, is attractive to me, I can get the tea bags left at my doorstop. If you're able to do that, 
Um, and you prevent me from having to go into my car, drive to a shop, buy the tea bags and come back home. Chances are I might actually just let you come and deliver the tea bags to me. Well, that's a logical thing in terms of price point. But we have become used because of hundreds of years of going to the market. We became used to getting into the car, going to the store, walking down to a shop, taking your bag, buying what you need, walking back home and so on. There's a culture of shopping, going to the market and so on, going and trying on shoes, you know, an entire culture developed. Well, before the pandemic, firms uh, grew because of the returns on scale. Firms like, I think Zippo is the name or Zappo, they, they sell you shoes where you can go online, order a pair of shoes, they are delivered to you, enormous, enormous carbon footprint for this. You try the shoes on, they don't fit, you can return it at no cost, they send you another one and so on and so forth. These firms had developed before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, during the lockdown, it's almost like in many societies, not just in the richer countries, but in many countries, um, that we were suddenly all sent to platform capitalism university. Because even those who are not used to buying online, who didn't want to buy online, who had sort of moral problems with buying online or who enjoyed going to the market, um, were forced now to go online and buy. And a lot of the basic human activity, um, which had disappeared during the lockdowns in particular, and some countries, the lockdowns were quite long. Um, in that period, we were trained to just start buying things off the web and basic human activity was denied us, not just for the period of the pandemic, but in a way, the pandemic allowed platform capitalist firms like Amazon and a whole series of firms to train us um, to the so-called convenience and price points of buying online. And you know, around the world, and studies have shown this, that many people have, even though the lockdowns um, were released and people could go back to shops, they just didn't. They continued to buy you know, things like groceries uh, off the web, off the platform. And that actually even deepens atomization. You might remember, Chris, the book that Robert Kaplan wrote uh, maybe half a generation ago called Bowling Alone, where he made the argument that, you know, people were not going out and forming groups and so on. And he was pilloried for it. I thought slightly unfairly because, well, he picked the concept, the, the, the activity of bowling, which had already had two problems to it. One, the kind of elite academics were mocked that he chose bowling, which is largely, I imagine, in the in the United States, a working class activity. But also, bowling itself, you know, was losing its its um, its place in 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 popular activities. Even by that time, it was a little anachronistic. He could have picked many other things, uh, you know, instead of bowling alone. But anyway, the broad point Kaplan was making is correct, which is that lots of uh, collective activity was already being depleted a long time ago. You know, people were not drawing. What he, the point he was making is, people weren't joining extracurricular um, organizations. They were coming home, harried, long commutes because of the terrible um, transportation problems in very many parts of the United States. Long commutes, get home tired, get some sort of quick meal, put the TV on, and with the you know, decreased price of buying consumer goods. You can have two or three TVs, so people watch different TV shows in different rooms. And Kaplan's was a cry in the dark against that. Well, if you think what Kaplan was talking about was bad, it's, it's worse now because, you know, my father who died in 1999 used to say, he lived in Calcutta in India, he used to say, 
Every day I get dressed so I can go and talk to people in the shops. You know, it was a form of activity. He lived in a big apartment building, go down, talk to people in shops, found that to be a form of socializing that kept him alert, alive, also forced him to, you know, take a bath, shave, get dressed and go out. Well, now you just sit at your computer and buy things. And I think one should be a little concerned about this. One doesn't have to take a kind of, you know, nostalgic view. I think Kaplan's book had a little bit of nostalgia in it for some great past. You don't need that. Uh, you don't even need to have a kind of conservative view that values, old values are being depleted. But we can still, I think, acknowledge the fact that this form of, of capitalism, this platform capitalism, further atomizes people. Um, and you, you know, you used to complain people don't know their neighbors. Well, you don't know your community. Um, that depletion is, I think, quite serious for the development of politics. I want to talk about violence, state violence. The capital state, you write, is not a dignified state. It is a state of police officers, not social workers, a state of tax collectors, not teachers and health workers. The capitalist system burns clothes and wastes food. It is not dignified. It is an abomination, an obscenity. It is decadent. The system is violent, so we are not abstractly in favor of nonviolence. We want to create a nonviolent system, a socialist system. Talk about that. Wow, that's a lot of rhetoric in those sentences, Chris. I'm, I'm blushing a little bit, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, wow, okay. Um, look, here's the, the thing. You know, you and I are speaking just after the United States has experienced one more school shooting. And it's interesting, Chris, you know, there are weapons all over the world. You and I were in a film, in the same film, Shadow World, and you made a good point in that film. You said the principal problem in the Middle East is not terrorism, it's the weapons industry. I thought that was a very astute observation. It's a wash with weapons. When that film was being made, I was living in Beirut. In fact, while they filmed me, um, there was gunfire in the back background and I had to pause for a minute to acknowledge the, um, the you know, not 21 gun salute, but a thousand gun salute outside my window. Anyway, um, there's this school shooting. What's interesting is, you know, the debate in the United States is around guns and so on. Um, but I was interested in the fact that it's always, or not always, but often schools that experience this shooting. Um, there are guns in society. People could go into movie theaters. Sometimes they do. People could go and shoot. At rock concerts the, in Las Vegas, they did. Those things happen. But this seems a preponderance of violence at schools. Uh, that was interesting to me and, and seems to be little discussion about that. Tells you a little bit about the violence of schools where teachers are denigrated. You know, there's a conversation now, let's arm teachers is the conversation, it seems to me, from the right at least. Um, you won't allow teachers to choose the books they are teaching, but you're going to arm them. Such disrespect given to teachers routinely. Um, then the bullying in schools, toxic masculinity, all of this. It's a place of, I think, a soup of, of, of great um, a concern for people should be. Well, it seems to be a front line of some kind of violence taking place there. But then you pull the camera out from that. Violence is, exists in society. You know, violence is there. The state imposes violence upon society and violence exists in society. Um, there seems to be no antidote to that in advanced countries. Um, this is very disturbing. You know, I mean, 
you, you look at the budgets. I, I often tell people that you don't judge the morality of a country by its constitution. You should judge its morality by its annual budget. Um, if a country spends more on weapons, weapon system, militarism, police, and so on, then it spends on ending hunger, then it's a depleted society. You know, it's lost its way um, because it's, it's not willing to acknowledge um, that the imposition of hunger on people is a form of violence. And, and therefore, that's no difference. The, the lack of funding to end hunger is in a way the same as the increase of funding to the police force. They, they are actually both the same thing. They are both acts of violence. Um, if we just take the United States, I would say the annual budget of the United States is a violent budget. It's a violent budget towards society. And then society engenders violence. And what then typically happens is that, as Franz Fanon wrote, I think, beautifully in the first chapter of Wretched of the Earth called Concerning Violence, you know, Fanon doesn't say, let's go out and, and burn things down and let's be violent. It's actually not a handbook for violence. It's very poorly understood. What Fanon is saying is when the state is violent, when the state makes society violent, then when people explode in anger because they are frustrated, they can't eat, there's no opportunities for them, they explode violently. You know, it's Langston Hughes' poem, you know, what happens when there's a dream deferred? Well, it explodes. That explosion comes, Chris, not because some force is out there telling people go out and riot. Rioting is actually the normal expression uh, of a society that is violent. You know, these, this gun violence in schools, and I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't think it's correct. I think it's all bad. But I think it, it is produced by a violent society. Um, you know, we need to find an exit to that. The exit to that is not going to come through violence. And on the other hand, you can't just be out there calling on people who are rioting to be nonviolent. Um, the the focus of our of our anger of our annoyance must be the violent state and the violent processes that impose violence on people. That's where one has to turn one's objection. You know the kind of moral jeremiads against um, the rioters, say in Minneapolis or in Los Angeles. I think this is a misfired. Uh, criticism. The real violence is, is on the violence imposed on, on ordinary people uh, who don't have any other avenues easily available to them than to go out onto the street and throw a rock through a window and take out a television set and so on, or to go into a grocery store and just take bread, you know, for their families. Um, that act of desperation is a mirror reflection of the society one lives in. Uh, I think the kind of, you know, the indignation of the elite at that is not uh, appealing to me because that same elite is the one that imposed the violence on the first place. Great. We're going to stop there. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. 